So I wanted to, um, I wanted to again acknowledge um, all of you and your practice. Um, it just feels a tremendous gift to uh, come here and to build uh, this ongoing relationship that some of us have um, with each other in finding new ways to live with ourselves and each other and finding new ways to build a world. And um, I, I feel very honored to be in your presence, in the presence of, of each of you as you practice. Uh, so thank you. Thank you for that. <clears throat> I wanted... Um, to talk about the um, changing nature of our lives and to acknowledge the reality of them. <clears throat> when, when, we, um, when we begin to open our hearts to our lives, we see that there is this ongoing flow of changes there um, we find ourselves falling in love and then um, the, the just exquisite pleasure of that initial um, part of our relationships and then uh, that always changes and then we find ourselves hating each other or being frustrated with each other or um, feeling at a dead end with each other and those relationships sometimes end. We find ourselves sometimes having great days. If, you know, I came to you on a great day and I said, how, how are you? And you would beam and say, great. You know, things are going really well. Maybe our bosses acknowledged us or maybe we got a great job or um, maybe we were playing sports and we hit a home run or maybe we just woke up and sometimes that happens you know we just wake up and we feel like wow today isn't too bad <laughs> you know and, but then also we also find that um some days are lousy that we wake up just grumpy from the very word go and you know it when your cat who usually meows when you get up and sort of you know pushes herself against your leg and you're just like, oh, get away, <laughs> you know? You're just irritated from the very moment that you get up and then everything goes wrong. You're in a traffic jam or uh, you're running late and you get tense and the, there are a million things that could go wrong. The report that was supposed to be on our desk, the things someone was supposed to do didn't, didn't happen or um, our cars break down or washing machines break down or um, our health. We are sometimes healthy and vibrant and sometimes we're sick. That's a reality that we all face. Sometimes we're very sick. Some of us are mothers and have brought beings into the world who change right before our eyes, come into life and, li and manifest life often in ways we do not like. Sometimes they seem angelic, especially when they're little, and then when they get to the teenage years, they seem like demons. 
Our world is constantly changing. Our world is constantly changing. And the, um, the mind that is deluded thinks that this change will stop. The mind that is deluded thinks that somehow we will get to the right relationship or that we will get healthy and that will be the end of it or that we will find the perfect job, the perfect house, the perfect location, the perfect mental attitude that somehow if we just sort of hang in there enough things will come right and even if we can't imagine that in the external world then at least somehow we have this little hope that it will come right in our internal world, that all that is difficult and challenging will come to an end, that all unpleasant experiences somehow will come to an end. Think about it for a moment. When you think about your future, if in that thought you hold the reality of these constantly changing experiences so that we know we will face in the future many unpleasant experiences, much dissatisfaction in our jobs and in our relationships, times when we are unhappy. The Buddha said, this is the reality of our lives. This is the reality of our lives, that our lives are this constant changing experience of happiness and sadness, of pleasant and unpleasant, of good days and bad days, of relationships that come into being and then of relationships that die, of our own very life coming into being and then our life dying each one of us being in that process. That, that is the universal law. There is actually a way of living with this reality that doesn't bring suffering. And the invitation of our hearts is to call us to actually establish a relationship to this changing cycle of events. We think that our happiness lies in these changing experiences and events. We do really truly believe that if we can change our partners or change our relationships for the better or our houses or our health or whatever it is that we will be happy but these teachings say no that is not where happiness lies because those changes are outside of your control they are not in your control it will always end the nature of life is that every experience will end every day will end every moment of health will end and moments of success and fame will end. It will end. That's the reality. If we put our happiness and locate our happiness in those things, we are in suffering. We are in suffering.
And that is what suffering is. It is that attachment to wanting those certain things to be a certain way. And we will be in suffering for the rest of our lives if we don't challenge that relationship. Um, this is a <laughs> this is a, a really wonderful um, a wonderful uh, story told by Ramakrishna, a Hindu sage, whose visions and devotion became legendary throughout India in the last century. For days he sat by the side of the Ganges, lost in prayer, seeking revelation of the face of the Divine Mother, the creator of life itself. Then, in an amazing moment, the surface of the water rippled, and out of the river rose a huge and beautiful goddess, shining hair dripping with the waters of the river, eyes like pools that contain all creation. She opened her legs, and beings emerged from her body, children and animals, a fountain of births of all kinds. Then, in a terrible moment, she reached down and carried down her mouth and across her breasts. No, and reached down and carried a newborn child to her mouth and began to eat it, blood running down her mouth and across her breasts. For she who creates is also she who destroys. She is the source, the continuation, and the ending of all life. Then the goddess slowly sank back beneath the waves, leaving Ramakrishna to contemplate her power. It's a heavy image, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It's a heavy image. But it's true. It's true. All that is birthed, that is beautiful, ultimately changes and is destroyed. And that is the reality. And the Buddha once asked his bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, he said, what is greater? All the waters in the world, the great oceans, the Atlantic, he didn't call it the Atlantic and the Pacific, <laughs> but whatever he did call it, the Mediterranean, the Indian Oceans, I don't know if any of you have been on a boat for a while, for days, but there's a lot of water, more water than earth. And the Buddha said, what is greater? All these waters, all the tears that you have cried in grief for your suffering in your life. And when I first saw that question, I was like, the oceans, what could be bigger than that? And the Buddha said, no, all the tears because he could see into the lifetimes and lifetimes and lifetimes of beings, and he could see their grieving and their sorrow for these changes. The tears and tears and millions of tears that formed a greater pool of suffering than the oceans that are on this planet Earth. That is how much we have been crying about these changes. And yet, we began today by also acknowledging our strengths and acknowledging 
also that we have the capacity to hold these sorrows and changes in a way in which we don't have to suffer anymore. And that is the vision of these teachings. It is a vision that says suffering can come to an end. But that vision is not a vision that includes holding a wand and changing the ending of death or the ending of good health. It is a vision that doesn't include making relationships eternally good and pleasant. It is a it does not include holding a wand and saying you will always have what you like, that things will always be as you want. That vision does not include that. It does include a calling into being of qualities that live in our minds and hearts that can hold these eternal changes. And it says the issue is not the experience. The issue is not your breath. The issue is not whether you are in a relationship, whether your partner has left you, or whether you are um, at the middle of falling in love and it's ecstatic. That isn't the issue, because those keep changing. What is the issue is your relationship to it. That you can cultivate. You can find a way of holding these sorrows and come to a deep peace and happiness. You can find a way of holding these changing experiences and come to a deep peace and happiness. I am reminded of, um, I think I might have mentioned this at the last retreat, but it just burned into my mind um, an interview that I saw of Cher, who I just adore looking at. She is so pretty. Um, and, uh, and so um, I don't actually often watch TV, but um, I think it was, I don't know, in the middle of something or other, and I happened to switch channels, and there she was being interviewed by Diana Sawyers. Is that how you say her name, Diana Sawyers? Uh, I think of someone like that. And, um, and there Cher was looking, her exquisite self. And, <laughs> and Diana Sawyer said, um, you know, so here you are. I, I think she's 60 now or somewhere, getting older in that age range. And she said, well, so, you know, how, how's it been for you getting older? And Cher said, I've hated it. She said, I could have stopped my life at 40. And that was, it just was such a, a statement of profound suffering that in the last 20 years she's saying she didn't want to live her life because her beauty has changed, because she needs more and more operations to try to hold on to something that you cannot hold on to, and that she would rather not be living. And I reflect on the profound blessings I've experienced in the last 20 years and couldn't fathom thinking about not living them. And that, 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 that the grace the Dharma has brought me in the last 20 years 
feel so much more profound than the loss of that youthful skin and the coming into being of wrinkles and more weakness and that sometimes I sneeze, sometimes I sneeze now and I can't control my bladder. That's, that's old age, you know? It's like, wow, I'm getting older and I've inherited a weak bladder from my mom, you know? That's old age. But would I not live these last 20 years so that I wouldn't have to experience that? No. <laughs> you know? So, so the, um, the, the vision of this practice is to remind us over and over again that the calling to peace and that the calling to love is the calling to come into relationship with the experiences of our life. To call into being that capacity to allow and to accept how it is. So, um, this is um, uh, uh, how Mary Oliver says it. Have you ever seen anything in your life more wonderful than the way the sun every evening, relaxed and easy, floats towards the horizon and into the clouds or the hills or the rumpled sea and is gone and how it slides again out of the blackness every morning on the other side of the world? like a red flower, streaming upward on its heavenly oils, say, on a morning in early summer, at its perfect imperial distance. And have you ever felt for anything such wild love? Do you think there is anywhere in any language a word billowing enough for the pleasure that fills you as the sun reaches out as it warms you, as, it's, as you stand there empty-handed? Or have you too turned from this world? Or have you too gone crazy for the power for things? That, that clutching for an experience for a situation that clutching, have we gone crazy for the power of things, for that wanting? Have we gone crazy in our attachments to controlling food, our bodies, into trying to control our minds in, in the bad sense of control? Or can we open up both to the mystery and the beauty and the sorrows that are part of our lives? And then I wanted to read the story. My daughter these days is in pictures not as in Hollywood, 
but as in photographs taped to the walls of my prison cell. The cluster of photos tells a story that in the words of Sophie begins with, Remember, Dad? I've had a happy childhood so far. There we are in the maternity ward, proud dad holding a weak born up to the camera. Weeks later at home, me exhausted on the couch, her clinging to my chest like a little tree frog. The two of us on the hardwood floor of the kitchen, me coaxing a spiky-headed baby into crawling. There's a toddler in a jolly jumper wearing a striped stocking hat, eyes lit with the glee of a bouncing new life. Then come the early Christmases, each wearing a new bathrobe, Sophie on her feet by now, buried to the ankles in Barbie accessories and piles of torn gift wrap. As she turns into a poised young girl leaving grade five for middle school, I begin to disappear from the collage. Now the pictures of her alone, sitting on our favorite beach, pointing to the rock we used to sit upon, or of her each year holding up a Christmas gift towards the lens. There is a thinness to her smile in these pictures, carefully held, as if that smile might break into something else the moment the shutter clicks. Her attempts to bridge the distance, to include me in the moment, are the hard evidence of my absence. When a parent breaks the law, the fractures run straight through the child. It has been three years since Sophie first put her fingertips up to the glass that separated us in the visiting booth of the Ramon Center where she visited me twice a week. She knows more about prison than any young girl should have to know, and she carries her freight of grief the way other kids her age carry their backpacks to school every day. When I was first arrested, she was broken with grief, sobbing, Dad's never coming home, is he, Mom? To my wife through sleepless nights. Grief turned to anger. She cut my face from the photos in her album. Anger turned to resignation. She glued them back in again. Acceptance came too, like the day she said the Department of Corrections should actually be the Department of Mistakes. How does one remain a parent from prison? You can't say to a child, hang in there, sweetie, I'll be home in 18 years. It is unimaginable to them. Yet we remain bound to our children and they to us. In, a pri- in as primal a way as any parent, by our DNA and our love. A wise psychiatrist who did a pre-trial assessment of me set down his pen afterwards and said, this isn't about you anymore. You're going to prison for a long time. It's now about a little 10-year-old girl, about showing her that no matter how badly we screw up in our lives, no matter how terrible the mistakes we make, it can be survived. There can be redemption.
I love that story because it feels like it talks to those places in our lives where we feel it's impossible to hold, that it's impossible to hold something hard like that in our hearts with love or with patience or with acceptance or with kindness. And these teachings say that it is possible, that there actually always is redemption, that we can always begin again and again and again to come towards ourselves all the places like that in our lives to call into being love and to call into being the qualities that bring about that peace and serenity that changes our world. Yesterday, we talked about being fearless warriors. Yesterday, we talked about calling into being over and over again that effort and that energy that refuses to surrender, like this man, that refuses to surrender into apathy or into um, self-pity or um, into uh, depression or that, that sense of that um, healing isn't possible. That, that warrior stance that demands of us something that is actually more than we can ever conceive of. Because what we know in our minds, what we know in our thoughts, is what we know. But we are more than what we know. That's what these teachings say. There is a, a wonderful teacher called um, Mezumi Roshi um, uh, who says, um, he said, who used to say to his, sentence, uh, his students all the time when they came to him with problems, he would say, I don't know. I don't know. And in the beginning, his students would be really frustrated with him. He was the teacher. He was supposed to know. <laughs> And he kept saying, I don't know. I don't know. And finally they got that it wasn't about that knowing and trying to hang on to the known, but actually it was the exact opposite. It was surrendering into the mystery of the unknown. I don't know how to hold this. I don't. I don't know how to hold this. There are so many times in our lives when, and we shared that in the question and answer circle, where what is being given to us feels too much, and we can't. It feels like I can't hold it. It is too painful. It is too much. And we know in this moment then, we have to fall out of the known into the unknown, to call on something that we didn't know we had, but that we do, because that is, is what it means to be a human being, that we have that capacity, we have the unlimited love and patience and caring that can call on and on and on and on and over and over again that can be called on. So, 
at the moment um, my partner and I are going through a really difficult process. Shah, she was going to be here this weekend and um, we didn't know how we were going to uh, do it together. And then uh, she got sick, maybe fortuitously, maybe not, and couldn't come anyway. And um, so I watch my aversion because I want it to be different. And I watch my aversion come up because I want her to be different. I don't want her to be angry. I don't want her to be depressed. I want her to be loving towards me. I want her to be excited when I come home rather than shut down and distant. I want to be able to be more open myself to her. I want to be able to be more flexible and generous. And over and over again, we find that we trigger each other into the places where it feels that we cannot stretch one bit more, where it just feels like the only thing that can happen is that we have to separate each other from each other either in that moment or think about separating. And there's this poem that so talks about it to me uh, by Rumi that says, God's presence is there in front of us, a fire on the left, and that's how I feel, a fire on the left, (laughs) a lovely stream on the right. Whoever walks into the fire appears suddenly in the cool stream. Any head that goes under the water surface, that head pokes out of the fire. Most people guard against going into the fire and end up in it. If you are a friend of God, fire is your water. You should wish to have a hundred thousand sets of moth wings so you could burn them away one set a night. And that's how I feel I am burning away one set of wings after another, one set of wanting after another in the fires of purification night after night and when I forget what my path is then it becomes unmanageable and if I remember that my path is one of coming into relationship with what's going on inside of me of calling into being patience and kindness again when it feels like I'm in a desert without any patience and kindness, when I have to call into being that warrior energy and say, Arena, I know you think you you can't do it, but anyway, you're going to. You're going to pray, and you're going to call those energies into being. Then I see that I am in the middle of the fires of purification, that I am on my path, and that this is yet again another invitation for me to strengthen myself. And I think I've told you um, the story, but it's come to my mind, so I'll tell you again, that when I was in Nepal um, a couple of years ago, I was um, in a monastery um, sitting, um, practicing in the tradition of Sokni Rinpoche. And um, 
when I first got there, I, I, I t- it, you know, took some time to settle down, and then I went through a period of great ease, and then suddenly it seemed incredibly difficult, and I could hardly sit. And I was just in my room practicing day after day, and come out to eat and then go back into my room again. It wasn't like there were, there were no Dharma talks. And every, every now and again I would walk down, 390 stairs because there was no road to the monastery walking down these stairs to interview with Sokni and um, that in itself was a trip because this was the stairs where everyone used to live, to wash to defecate, these stairs was the highway for everything so I would be walking down these stairs and I'd come to the um, to his house at the bottom of the hill and wait with, there was always lots of people in the living room uh, waiting to see him and finally I'd be called in and I would go in and he would say how things and I would say oh terrible it's really hard and uh, you know and, and feel a little um, uh, what can I say tentative about sharing it you know it's like it's so hard and uh, he would say oh good very good very good when it's hard very good this is the real spiritual practice Um, and the Dalai Lama recently said the same thing in, in reading something he said real spiritual practice comes when we face difficulty because when it's easy then, then, then there's no real effort. Then it's just coming and going with ease, and we're sort of hanging and gliding. But when it's difficult, and we're having to struggle to call those places into being, that's when those muscles of patience and mindfulness and love are strengthened. And so then I have to remind myself, this, this is the blessing and the gift arena, what you are going through. This is the blessing because otherwise your love couldn't strengthen, because otherwise your patience couldn't strengthen and your perseverance and your strength, that it is these qualities that are the qualities that bring about happiness, not that shall be a certain way. So the Buddha said, he said, the first noble truth is the truth that all things are unsatisfactory, that all things are unsatisfactory. He said, contemplate this. Contemplate the fact that life is inherently unsatisfactory. And then he said, we can get into suffering around this. And when we do, it is because we are clinging and wanting for it to be different. This is the second noble truth, that we are in suffering for only one reason. We are in suffering for, because we want it to be different. And then he said in the third noble truth, there is liberation. There is a peace that can be described as the highest peace. There is a mind that can be so at ease. And we talked about Deepama yesterday. There is a mind where there is only equanimity, clarity, and loving kindness. Faith and devotion. 
there is a mind that is just the expression of a pure heart. There is the highest peace. He said it's obtainable. And then he said, and there is a practice. There is a way of living and remembering that cultivates this highest peace. And that is the path we're on. And central to that is to be present, to know our experience, not just to know it as an intellectual exercise, but to come into relationship to it so that we can love it, so that we can be there for it, so that we can begin to say, oh, I remember, it isn't the experience that's the issue because that's changing and that's unsatisfactory. I remember I'm alive so that I can build the container, I can build the relationship of love and patience and peace to hold this changing flow of experience. Oh, I remember, that's why I am alive. This is one of my favorite stories. A few years ago at the Seattle Special Olympics, Nine contestants, all physically or mentally disabled, assembled at the starting line for the 100-yard dash. At the sound of the gun, they all started out, not exactly in a dash, but with a relish to run the race to the finish and win. All, that is, except one boy who stumbled on the asphalt, tumbled over a couple of times and began to cry. The other eight heard the boy cry. They slowed down and looked back. They all turned around and went back, every one of them. One girl with Down syndrome bent down and kissed him and said, this will make it better. All nine contestants then linked arms and walked across the finish line together. Everyone in the stadium stood and the cheering went on for minutes. We get confused over and over again and think we're here to win the race. We are not, although that might happen. We are here to link arms with the part of ourselves that stumble and to walk all of us together, the 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 sad part, the grieving part, the impatient part, the part that thinks our lovers should be different, the, the parts of us that feel sick and despairing. We are here to link arms with all those parts inside of us and actually outside. We are here to link with people who seem most difficult to link with. George Bush is that one of those people for me. Sharon, another person, to link arms in friendship and say, I commit myself, I commit myself, I commit myself to the highest peace, to holding all things with kindness and patience, clarity and love. We come into this world 
with a mind that is habituated to clinging and aversion and a mind that is also embedded in love and awareness. We will find ourselves over and over again challenged by our habituated mind. Our calling is not to believe or be seduced into the delusion that it is founded on that we can fix life. We cannot fix life. We can only love it. Life is not fixable. Our bodies are not fixable. Our emotions are not fixable. We cannot manipulate or control things forever. Share couldn't, and neither can we. But we can open our hearts. So I'd like to end with Rumi. Every tree, every growing thing as it grows says this truth. You harvest what you sow with life as short as a half-taken breath. Don't plant anything but love. So let's sit together for a moment. This talk was given by Arena Weissman at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on August 11, 2002. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.